Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And therefore the powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. And for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. We come to a brand new section in Matthew's gospel. The first 10 chapters that we've studied, we saw a revelation, the revelation of the king. In chapters 11 through 13, we see a mounting and growing rebellion against the, the king. But now from chapter 14 through 20, we see this quiet departure, a retreat, as Jesus begins to withdraw from the multitudes. He begins to withdraw from the fierce and constant problem of his enemies. And he's going to now focus much of his life and much of his ministry on the disciples themselves. Jesus wants to prepare them for the crisis, for the ordeal that they're about to face in Jerusalem with his arrest and with his torture and with his execution. Jesus is on a mission from his heavenly father. He is going to accomplish that mission. And the teachings of Jesus about the, the kingdom at first confused them and troubled the disciples. So Jesus will begin a process of preparation for the events that are about to unfold and the king's rejection will in this chapter at first result in persecution in verses 1 through 12. But Jesus himself will make a provision for them in verses 13 through 21 and then he'll provide protection for them at the end of the chapter in verses 22 through 36. There will be three large contingencies or groups that will sort of form from here to the end of the gospel. It will be the needy multitudes. It will be the needy disciples. It will be the greedy enemies. And Jesus is going to have to divide his time between these three groups. But now, Jesus wants to retire for some much-needed rest. The hostile forces that want to destroy him and the needy people that have surrounded him keep pressing him. And Jesus will be both moved and motivated by compassion and, and selflessness as he continues to minister to the needs of the people in spite of all of these problems. And between verse 3 and verse 12, there is this little parenthetical note that Matthew makes as he tells us both the tragic and inspiring story of the death of John the Baptist. For the careful Bible student, you should be asking yourself this question. Well, why does Matthew insert this information right at this very moment? 
Why is this story in this place at this time so important? And remember, the religious leaders have rejected Jesus. The people in his own hometown of Nazareth, they have rejected Jesus. And now, like I said, Jesus is going to withdraw and retreat. And and Matthew is going to give an example of pain and problem and persecution because the truth is the followers of Jesus run the risk of having things go bad when you decide to stand up for what's right. When you make the choice to tell the truth or, or say the truth, I... When I was preparing this study, I kept asking myself, were the parables in chapter 13 given in light of the death of John the Baptist? Has the death of of John already taken place? And if John's death had already taken place in this interim period, I'm going to suggest to you that it is in that under that auspice, that dark cloud that Jesus, again, has been telling the truth, concealing it from the people who don't welcome it and revealing it to the people who do. So again, why does Matthew put John's death here? I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that it in part illustrates this very dark attitude of rejection and unbelief that characterized the religious leaders and the citizens of his hometown. And it becomes a type and a picture of what awaits people who love him and say what he says, but also his own death, his own future death. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, he who receives you receives me. He also said, he who rejects you rejects me. W.H. Griffith Thomas in his outline studies in Matthew points out that if John came in the spirit of Elijah... And I think that that's true from Luke chapter 1, verses, chapter 1, verse 17. That he says, and I quote, Herodias certainly shows the wickedness of Jezebel and Herod the weakness of Ahab. And behind these human personalities were the same unseen forces causing a notable likeness. In the back of Elijah and John were the Holy Spirit inspiring them with faith and fortitude. While in the back of the rulers and their womankind was the evil one. One inciting them to evil both in word and in deed. And I think he's exactly right. There are three main characters in this particular passage of scripture we see the cowardice of a king and the conniving of a queen and then the courage of a prophet but I want you to note something it's not this generation that dreamt up drama if you are old like me You'll probably remember Peyton Place. Peyton Place became the very meaning of the word drama. For those of you who are more mature, you remember Dallas. And for those of you who are hip and with it, the Kardashians. What do all of these three things have in in common? That there is drama and intrigue as people do weird and wicked things to one another. But it isn't this generation that dreamt up weirdness and wickedness. Look what it says in verse 1, the cowardice of Herod. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is a word that means a ruler of a fourth. Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work with him. Herod Tetrarch is also known as Herod Antipas. And in order for you to understand exactly what it is that you're reading and why it's so important, we have to take a quick look at the genealogy, if you will, of the Herodian family. Herod Antipas's father was a guy named Herod the Great. 
You know him from the story in the opening passage of Matthew because this is the Herod who basically, when confronted by the religious leaders and the and the people, the Magi who came from the east at the birth of Jesus, this is the Herod who said, what are you doing here? And they said, we're here to honor the king of the Jews. And you'll remember Herod's response. Well, wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. You can't have two kings of the Jews. And you'll remember he slaughters the children in Bethlehem. He rules from about 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was appointed king by the Roman Senate, first at the direction of Mark Antony. He was an Edomite by birth, and that's why he's called Edomaean. This is that group of people that are on the east side of the Dead Sea as you approach the, 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 the Jordanian wilderness. Unger's Bible Dictionary described Herod the Great as, well, basically a pagan in practice and a monster in character. He had nine wives. Some scholars think he had ten. And he thought nothing of killing his own wives and his own children. Augustus, who is the Roman emperor at that time, said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's relative. And so when Herod died, he apportioned his empire to his four sons, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. Now, in order, again, to catch this, you'll note that Herod had a son named Aristobulus. He had a daughter named Herodias. It is this daughter who will marry her uncle, Philip. Creepy, huh? So, getting back to the story. He rules... Herod Antipas rules from the time of his father's death to about 39 AD. So he will be a ruler during the time of the death, the, the resurrection of Jesus, and, and then shortly thereafter. He's remembered by historians as being selfish and addicted to luxury and ambitious. His mother, Herod Antipas, was a woman named Malthaki. Now, you may not know that name, but his mother was a Samaritan by birth. And so this means his half-brother, Philip, is the son of Herod the Great by Miriam. And so Herod Agrippa, the son of Aristobulus, is the one who imprisons Peter and James the Apostle in Acts chapter 12. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa II is the Herod who tries Paul in Acts chapter 25, verse 13. He was the son of Agrippa. And so when you read about all of these different Herods in the Bible, you should be aware of who they are and the important role that they play in New Testament history. Now, I also want to go back to the text. Herod receives a report about Jesus. And I want you to pause just for a moment and think about that. He hears about Jesus, and people are going to offer him information. Who is Jesus? Who exactly is this person? But you'll remember that John the Baptist has already offered us an explanation of who Jesus is. Remember, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist has said about him. Now, the report is that Jesus has a powerful message and he's able to perform miracles, but Herod Antipas attributes these powers to spirits. He's killed John the Baptist. And so, does he believe that in some way Jesus has come to acquire supernatural powers through some sort of mystical or superstitious process? In Mark's gospel, we receive part of the report in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, where it says, Now King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. 
And therefore these powers are at work at him. Others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets making a reference to a prophet that Moses predicted would come and would be more powerful and important than even Moses. But it says, but when Herod heard it, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. And so you've got to understand something. This news about Jesus, it doesn't excite him. It frightens him. Has John come back to life in order to seek revenge? And so you can imagine John is not just irritated. Herod is not just irritated. He's terrified. And then again, we have this little note, if you will. It's a little parenthetical note between verse 3 and verse 12 as Matthew offers an explanation of what's going on in verse 3. It says, for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him. That means he had him arrested and he put him in prison. We happen to know exactly where the prison was. It was at his palace fortress on the east side of the Dead Sea called Machairus. He puts him in prison and note what it says, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And this is important. Matthew says he calls Herodias his brother Philip's wife, not his wife, not his niece. He says this is his brother Philip's wife because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. In what sense? Well, John contemned Herod Antipas for this unlawful marriage. It wasn't a marriage. It was a sham and a fraud. And by the way, this wasn't Herodias's, like I said, first incestuous relationship. She was married to Antipas's brother, Philip. And we know the whole sordid story from Josephus, a first century historian who was a Jew and who switched sides during the Jewish revolt. We know that from Josephus, not only was Philip her husband, but it just so happened that he tells the story of how they met. In other words, Herodias is married to Philip. They have a daughter. Her name is Salome. Her name isn't mentioned in the text, but this is the dancing daughter-in-law. Now, it just so happens that Herodias and Philip make, they take a sort of a trip to Rome because that's what the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, they would go throughout the Mediterranean and do whatever famous and rich people do. And it just so happened that Herod Antipas also went into to Rome and Herodias and Herod Antipas fall madly in love. It just so happens that she is upset with her marriage to Philip. And after all, they love each other. And it shouldn't matter because they love each other so much. And so Herodias decides that she's going to shack up with her step-uncle. But this is where the plot thickens. John the Baptist condemns their marriage because Herod's living an immoral lifestyle because it just so happens that Herod Antipas is already married to another woman. And this girl happens to be the daughter of Aretas, who's the king of the Nabataean kingdom in the rock city of Petra. And Aretas is well known in history because he mounts a campaign against Herod Antipas' father and almost destroys the entire army. So Herod Antipas marries King Aretas' daughter in order to form a tentative peace to make sure that the borders are secure, but he is going to abandon her because he's head over heels in love with this girl. And so she believes that he wants to have her murdered because guess what? Herod Antipas doesn't believe in divorce. But there's no problem to be remarried if she's dead. And so panicked, she runs for her life to her father. And Antipas seduces Herodias. And talks her into returning back with him. 
Philip divorces her. Herod Antipas divorces his wife. Herod commits serious sins. He unlawfully puts away his own wife. And you might think, how? He threatened to kill her. And then he seduces his own daughter-in-law, or sister-in-law. And you thought your family was messed up. Now, the Tetrarch could have easily have dismissed John's criticism. He could have said, you know what? This is all political. This is not religious and moral. John the Baptist is a Republican. He's just saying this stuff. He's just saying this stuff in order to make himself look good. This is all about politics, but it has nothing to do with politics. We know that the sins of kings and leaders affect nations and the sins of government affect the citizens. And so what John the Baptist says, I know in your world that you think that you're in love with each other. And, and who are we to say or to doubt your love or, or any of those other things? But he is going to confront him and he is going to tell him that his marriage is a sham. It's not real and it's not legitimate. And in verse 5 it says, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Clearly, Herod wants to kill John the Baptist. He wants to kill him for at least two reasons. Number one, he resents his message. And number two, he fears the population. Because the rest of the people living in his kingdom have heard him speak. And they know that this is a guy who's not one of those guys who's going to be politically manipulated or even morally manipulated. He's going to tell the truth. And according to Josephus, it was Herod's ambition to have him arrested and execute him. According to Josephus, he writes, Herod, who feared least the great influence John had over the people, might put him into his power put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion for they seemed ready to do anything that John the Baptist wanted them to do. And fearing John because he was a just man and a holy man, his words. And then Josephus writes, to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into any difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when he would, that it should not be too late. In other words, Josephus said, Herod had a couple of options. He could have said, you're right. What I've done is wicked and what I have done is wrong and it's injurious. And I've got to figure out a way to make this right. But Herod hated John, and he also feared the people. Unlike your government, they don't fear you. Your government actually doesn't care what you think. They may say, we care about what you think, but even though the Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman, or the Bible says certain things about family and about marriage, the moment that you decide that what the Bible has to say is, is true, you live in a culture and a society that says, we don't care what you think. Herod fears the people Samuel Johnson notes that shame arises from the fear of men, but conscience from the fear of God. At this particular moment, at least Herod still has at least some semblance of a conscience. Richard Armour writes, quote, The conscience is a built-in feature that haunts the sinner, helps the preacher, but some sins it makes us turn and run from, but most of all, it simply makes takes the fun from, which is interesting. In other words, your conscience might say, this is wrong, but I still want to do it because it's fun. William E. Gladstone, the former prime minister of Britain, said the disease of an evil conscience is beyond the practice of all physicians of all countries of the world. Once your conscience has been infected, once your conscience 
knows what's right and you determine to do what's wrong, you are doing serious injury to your conscience. And Herod seems to have a strange fear and fascination with John the Baptist. But he's going to reject the voice of the Baptist. He's going to reject what the Baptist has to say about Jesus. He's going to reject what he says about his circumstances and sin. He's going to reject his conscience. But he's going to listen to the voice of lust. And so we see the cowardice of Herod as it moves to the craftiness of Herodias. Look what it says in verse 6. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now you have to understand something. It's Herod's birthday. But according to Josephus, at least in that culture and at that time, most observant Jews did not celebrate their birthday. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not even for a moment suggesting it's wrong for you to celebrate your birthday. It's okay. Jehovah's Witnesses think it's an evil sin to celebrate your birthday because the first mention of a birthday in the Old Testament was Pharaoh, and people died. And the mention in the New Testament of Herod's birthday, people died. So the Jehovah's Witnesses thought, it's probably a wrong thing to celebrate your birthday. But again, it shows a twisted and perverted way of interpreting the scripture. That's not what the scriptures say. It doesn't say don't celebrate your birthday because bad things sometimes happen on people's birthday. But here the palace throw a party. Now remember where we are. It's the prison fortress and palace of Machiris near the Dead Sea. In that culture and society, when men and women celebrated, oddly enough, they celebrated separately. There would have been a separate dining place for the women, and there would have been a separate dining place for the men. There's drinking. There's dancing. Somehow Herodias' daughter finds her way into the section where the men are, And she decides to dance for mom's new boyfriend. Now, some people might say for mom's new husband, but according to the text, she's really dancing for her father's ex-wife's boyfriend. Now, again, her name isn't given in the text, but we know it's Salome. And it says in verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now again, here's what we don't know. I mean, obviously the text is very, very general about how she danced and what she did during the dance. And, and, And so oddly enough, most of us are just simply left to our imagination. But in our imagination, are you left with the idea that whatever she did and however she did it, it elicited a response from her audience? I think the answer is yes. Because he's drunk, she's dancing, and in verse 7, it says, therefore he promised with an oath. That means he swore to God that he would give her whatever she might ask. And once again, Mark's gospel adds, the king said to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's kind of a, a strange boast. But remember, remember, she is the daughter of his half brother and niece. She is a Herod through and through. And it says, so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? Now think about where we're at in the conversation and in the narrative. What will I ask for? Mom, what should I ask for? Should I ask for up to half of the kingdom? Should it be a part of the commitment that what, however the future unfolds, that whatever that means, it's I am going to be in charge in the future. Do you think she asks for, did she say, well, maybe I should have a turbocharged camel or um, a yacht on the Galilee or a great big house, a beach house? Should I ask for a stipend for the rest of my life? What should I ask for? And in verse 8, it says, so she, having been prompted 
by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now, when you pause and you think about it, there's a lot of things that a mother can ask of her child. But what mother asks her daughter to kill a human being in order for the guilt and the shame and the pain and the darkness to go away? What kind of a mother thinks it's a good idea for a daughter to dance in such a way to elicit a lust that generates such a response that a person is willing to give up whatever it is that they have in order to satisfy that lust? What kind of a mother is willing to do this? We certainly are not impressed with Herod's cowardice. But which one is truly more wicked and more conniving and more crafty? Herodias saw John's message as a constant source of embarrassment. It's a constant source of humiliation. Remember what she's done. She has abandoned her husband in order to embrace this man, in order to go forward into a future that the Bible condemns. And so John the Baptist has inconveniently pointed out that what you're doing is wrong and Herodias wants acceptance. She doesn't just simply want someone to tell her that what she's doing is wrong. She wants someone to tell her that what she's doing is right and to accept her for the decision that she's made she wants the criticism to stop and she wants the guilt to go away. She wants silence. She wants acceptance. It's not good enough that you just simply accept what she's done. You have to celebrate what she's done, even if it's wrong. And remember what I've told you over and over again, that the Christian's response to sin is that we mourn sin. And we celebrate righteousness. We do not celebrate sin and mourn that which is virtuous. And look what it says in verse 9. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Read that again. The king is sorry. Why is he sorry? There's something inside of him that he knows that this is wrong, that his lust and greed and ambition and need for admiration have co combined into a sorry circumstance, nevertheless because of the oaths. What oaths? That he swore by God in front of all of the population, every important person that you can imagine is there at his birthday party. And he doesn't want to be seen as a person who goes back on his word. And in Mark's gospel, it even adds something very interesting. In Mark chapter 6, it says, and the king was not just sorry. Mark uses the term exceedingly sorry. He was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he didn't want to refuse her. Would it surprise you if I told you that if, again, we had the ability to go back in time and space and we could like literally be flies on the wall as we watch the events unfold, I'm going to suggest to you that when she asks this in his drunken stupor, he begins to tremble a little bit. He begins to falter a little bit. And I'm going to suggest to you that his eyes begin to well up with with tears and that maybe he begins to sob because he has no control over the emotional response that's just about to happen. These are tears 
real tears, but they're crocodile tears. And some of you might be thinking, well, look, he's sorry. Look, look, he's really sorry for what he's done. But sometimes sorry isn't good enough. The king is sorry in what sense? His conscience knew that he had made a foolish vow. He knew that this foolish boast was motivated by a combination of lust and an incessant need for admiration. And, And so it is sorrow, but it's not sorrow that becomes repentance. There is a godly sorrow for sin, and there's a worldly sorrow for sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul writes, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. That means without regret. But the sorrow of the world works death. There are people who are sorry about the murder. About the crime. They're sorry they broke up their marriage. They're sorry they stole the money from work. They're sorry that they did these things. Esau was sorry that he gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew. And the Bible says that he sought repentance with tears. But in the end, he sought to kill Jacob. And Judas was sorry. He was sorry. He was sorry that he kissed Jesus and that he turned him over to the people who would execute him. He was sorry as he watched him march away and they tortured him and then they executed him and his conscience is filled with a flood of remorse and regret. He's filled with sorrow and he brings the betrayal money and he throws it on the temple mount and they said, what is this to us? What do we care about that you're sorry? And he went and he hung himself. Sorrow that leads to a person dying or a sorrow that leads to your own death can't be called repentance by any stretch of the imagination. Sorrow isn't necessarily repentance, although sorrow may accompany repentance. Repentance from sin means that you're sorry enough to stop sinning. And start obeying God. And you may be sorry about something that you've done that you can never correct. And the issue isn't whether or not you're sorry. The issue is, are you willing to stop whatever it is and start obeying God? We live in a world that's filled with sorrow and that's filled with tears and filled with regret. We live in a world where many people are truly sorry for their sins, but they're not sorry enough to stop. They're not sorry enough to turn from their sin and to turn to their Savior. And they're willing to make compromises that are so significantly wrong that they're willing to abandon their deeply held beliefs and invite their children or their grandchildren to do that which is unspeakable. Don't be deceived by sorrow that leads to death or destruction. Don't be deceived by people who are sorry that they stole the money. They're sorry they killed the child. They're sorry they abused the children. They're sorry they destroyed their marriage. They're sorry they ruined what, 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 whatever it is that they touched, that they stole another person's husband, that they stole another person's wife. Don't think for a moment that this person who, who says that they're sorry, but in their mind and in their heart, they're thinking the world is a better place because I did what I did and they're not even the least bit repentant. John Corson is fond of saying sin is bad. Not because it's forbidden or sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Sin destroys people's lives. Be careful for the head that you ask for. 
because you just might get it. And so look at the courage of John the Baptist in the first of the final verses. It says, so he sent, that's Herod, and he had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and they took away the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. We're not told what John thought or said in the closing moments of his life. We're not given any indication that that when the soldiers marched into the prison and when they opened the gate and then they unceremoniously just simply asked him to bend over and look in a particular direction and they cut his head off. We're not told what happened or how it happened or how people responded. But we have plenty of evidence about his life and about his message and about his ministry. We have plenty of evidence that he preached the gospel and that he confronted sin and he called people to repent and he called people to return to the Lord. We have all the evidence to support that he didn't fear anything but God. And I suspect that he realized that by confronting the unlawful marriage of Herod and Herodias, that he ran the risk of being killed because that's what happens sometimes when you expose the unfruitful works of darkness, when you actually go on record and you say there are certain things that are wrong and that are wicked and that are evil. Abortion is wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong. Chopping up babies is wrong. Selling their parts is wrong. How can we live in a culture and a society that quite literally turns on its head the the meaning of marriage? How, How can we for a moment begin to ask and answer the question, if you live in a culture that says marriage is optional or it's whatever I think, and guess what? The presence of a father and the presence of a mother in the life of a home doesn't really matter. What you do is sign the death warrant of a culture. The historian Josephus said of John the Baptist, Now when many others came, crowds gathered all around him, for they were greatly moved by the hearing of his words. Whatever it was that John said as he cried out for the people to turn from their sin and to turn to the Lord and to embrace the future of the promises of God by the provision that he would make, most of the people heard it gladly and That's why I think John was such a remarkable person and why even Herod Agrippa himself knew that something was horribly and terribly wrong. The disciples come and they bury the prophet's body. The disciples of John the Baptist perform a death notification They went and they told Jesus. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus is touched not only by John the Baptist's death, by every death. When the disciples of John were distressed and discouraged, they went to Jesus. And they talked to Jesus. And sometimes the pain that rages inside of us as people make sinful choices and sinful decisions and we don't know who to go to or who to talk to. You know, one of the things that I find remarkable is I I understand, I understand that each and every one of us find ourselves in dark places and difficult places. A husband or a wife says, I'm leaving you. A son or a daughter embarks on a journey that's way less than God-honoring Things happen. Marriages fall apart. Things happen. And I wish I could spend time with each and every one of you when the trauma and the pain and the grief and the sorrow seem overwhelming, but Jesus is always available to talk to. 
you can go to Jesus and you can talk to him about what's going on. He cares about what's going on. Jesus cares about your family and he cares about your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your grandma and your grandpa. Your life matters. Your marriage matters. And so what does Jesus do when he hears about the murder of John? He'll quietly withdraw to a lonely place and a private place. He himself will have to think long and hard. John could have kept his mouth shut. And he would have retained his head. John reveals Herod's sin and then the solution for the problem of sin. The message remains the same in every generation. You don't have to remain in your sin. You don't have to hold on to the sin. You can let it go. There is a God who loves you. There is a Christ who cares for you. There's forgiveness that's available to you. And some of you might think that the pain is too great, the humiliation too great, the the problem too great. But the Bible's solution is always the same. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing and start doing what's right. The Bible's repeated testimony is not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul told the Thessalonians, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient with everyone. Isaiah said, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, show the people their transgression." But he wasn't content to just simply show them their transgression. He would also point to the solution. There's a God who loves you. There's grace and mercy available to you. John's courage is contrasted by Herod's cowardice and Herodias's craftiness. And you know what's interesting? The next time we see Herod... The next time we see Herod in Luke chapter 9, verse 9, it says that Herod kept trying to see him. Jesus will make no effort to see Herod until the appointed time. Jesus went about his mission and left the king with his unresolved fear and his unrelenting sin. And when he really does meet him, when it comes time to face him for that final moment, Jesus is silent. Herod will beg him, show me some sign, show me some wonder, speak to me. But Jesus has nothing to say to him. Herod has silenced John. He shut the mouth of the Baptist. You see, he made sure that the messenger's message was at least in part stilled. He did something way more deadly. Not only did he kill the voice that was exposing his sin, but then he killed the voice of his own conscience. You see, when you live in a world where you say, I want the voices to stop and I want the guilt to go away. When you refuse to hear the voice of God, then the chances are the only voice you're willing to listen to is the one that encourages you in your rebellion. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer says, Today, If you will hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your hearts. If you're willing to listen, if you're willing to listen to the voice of Jesus, then he's willing to speak to you. Herod rejected the voice of the prophet and his conscience, and Jesus would have nothing further to say to him. You see, the most terrifying thing that could ever possibly happen to you 
is if you desperately want to hear from Jesus and he has nothing to say to you because you've already made your choice. Listen to the instructions that are given by God. Understand and believe the message. And ultimately, remember John's message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look and see that there's a solution to the darkness and the wickedness and the emptiness that's inside of you. There is a God who loves you and a Savior who will forgive you if you'll cry out to him. In the end, Herod and Herodias got exactly what they wanted. Until the day that they would have to see Jesus face to face. Herod made sure that God's messenger would remain silent. I pray, I pray, I pray that you won't let that happen. I pray that you will cry out for goodness. I pray that you will expose the unfruitful works of darkness. I pray that you will stand up for what's right and you'll resist what's wrong. And there may come a point where in the popular culture they'll make the voices stop talking. And when that happens, bring me a Chick-fil-A sandwich and some sweet tea. And then pray for me that I can face the end with dignity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are so many voices asking us to do so many things. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be willing to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. That, Lord, we would make a, an appeal and that we would beg each other and our children and their children to believe what the Bible says is true about our condition, about the problem of sin, about the sanctity of marriage and the reality that every home needs a mom and a dad. Lord, we know we live in a broken world and that sometimes sinful choices and sinful decisions have, have made it less than ideal circumstances. But Lord, we pray that we would honor you with what we do have and what you have given and that it would be our deep and sincere desire to turn from our sin and to turn to the Savior and believe what Jesus has to say. And Lord, for that person who is hurt and empty and is battering all kinds of difficulty, Lord, I pray that they would do what John the Baptist's disciples did, that they would speak to Jesus, that they would tell Jesus, that they would tell Jesus what's going on and let Jesus know, knowing that our Jesus will respond in love and compassion. And so again, Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.